morning, Calvary Bible Church. What a blessing and a privilege it is to worship our King together and to open up His Word. So let me pray for us as we do that. Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again as we've already sung, what a privilege and a blessing it is to have free access to You through the blood of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer, Jesus, who came to the, into the world to die and pay for sins on the cross, to rise again from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death. That for those who believe and put their trust in Him, He is Savior, Savior of our sins, Savior from condemnation, so that now there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, thank You for that great reminder through these amazing songs that we just sang. And pray that you might remind us of the privilege that it is to have free access to you and also to have your word, your precious word, that is our guide, that is our wisdom, that is wisdom from God, our great creator. Father, this morning we are very mindful of so much going on in our country, not only in our country, but all over the world. Father, I pray this morning and we pray together in unison for our government officials, both local, state, and countrywide, that, Father, you'd give them wisdom, that you'd open up the eyes of their hearts to, Lord, decision-making, that they might put the protection and the safety of the citizens of this country before themselves. We pray for that, Lord. We pray that you would advance your gospel, the good news of your Son, through your church, even in our country, as we live out our Christianity in transform Christian living. Help us to be people who are displaying the gospel of Christ in the way that we speak, in the way that we interact with one another and with the world. Help us, Father, to be people who are committed to the truth in love. And Lord, this morning we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, our spiritual eyes, to your scripture, to your word. Help us to be people who listen with hearts that are tender and soft to your scripture. Help us to be people who deliberately and purposefully apply your word to our lives. Help us to remember, Lord, that it, the point of even Bible exposition is not just that we would hear, but that we would also meditate, memorize, and apply ourselves to your word. That wisdom is knowledge applied to life. So help us, Father, renew our thinking this morning. And then as an outflow of renewed thinking, help us to live Christ-like lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, as our been, has been our text for the last three Sundays or so. And as you turn there, I don't know if perhaps you saw or read the amazing testimony from Lifeline Global Ministries this week that went out churchwide. It was a wonderful, wonderful memo that went out from that ministry Lifeline focuses on helping and ministering to incarcerated fathers and mothers, ministering to parents in jail with the gospel, with tools to help them fulfill their God-given responsibilities as fathers and mothers, even while in, 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 uh, in jail. And um, this amazing testimony came out the other day from an event that happened in a jailhouse here in, um, in uh, L.A. County. On Friday morning, in the same chapel where many men had come to Christ, a gang member started a prison riot. They broke windows, started fires, and caused significant damage to the facilities at Pitches Detention Center, part of the Los Angeles County jail system. 
The rioting inmates quickly grew from a small group to over 400 prisoners, and there were initially only 12 officers available to try to contain them. The rioting inmates then moved toward the dormitories where those same 75 new believers, Christians, mentioned last week at a previous memo, had grouped together and separated themselves from the rioters in an effort to maintain peace in the prison. The new Christian inmates, these 75 new believers, were given an option by the rioting inmates, join the riot or die. Armed only with their faith, 25 of the older men who were made up of many different races locked arms. Behind these men, a group of younger men were on their knees praying for God's protection. The rioters were becoming increasingly hostile and again demanded that the group join the riot. But the older men refused, standing together and keeping their arms locked. Eventually, more sheriffs were called in to stop the riot, and the group of 75 Christian men who refused to join were unharmed. The next day, I went into the jail, and it looked like a war zone. The head sheriff of, the, of Los Angeles County found out about the riot and called the sheriff at Pitches to talk about it. The Pitches sheriff is a Christian and has been a great advocate for Lifeline Global. He told the head sheriff the story of the inmates who had become Christ's followers and how they responded to the riot with prayer. What surprised the head sheriff even more was how these men came together despite being of different races. In prison culture, each race sticks together. And breaking away from your own racial group or befriending another racial group is often a deadly decision. Only God could have given those men the courage and the strength to come together and defy the rioters. Because of this incredible example of how God can change the hearts of men, we were given the opportunity to start Malachi Dads and Hannah's Gift Programs in all seven jails in the Los Angeles County system. Only God. And he ends there. Only God can do this. What an amazing testimony. Amazing testimony. That these 75 Christian men went against the culture of that jailhouse. That basically separates on the basis of race to have the courage to then stand together because of their identity of one, being one in Jesus Christ. What an amazing testimony. And beloved, this is the, this is the type of spirit-empowered, spirit-enabled spirit courage that we need today to have as Christians. Where by God's grace, we can stand firm against a culture that is progressively against God. That is progressively pushing against what God says in His Word. And I want us to think about that as we dive back into our passage this morning of Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Because it's, it was these types of courageous followers that our Lord Jesus was always looking for during his day. People who would stand in the gap against the culture as they followed after him and imitated him and trusted in him. And here in Mark chapter 10, we've been seeing that the, that the people of his day, beginning with those who were supposed to be the, the leaders of the people, people, the leaders who were supposed to point the people toward God and what he said, those people had, had adapted to the culture of the day, and, in, and specifically in our text, to the views of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so our Lord Jesus in this text teaches on God's view of all of this, of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now we've already seen, if you've been taking notes, 
and there on your screen, we've already seen in verse 1 the strategic setting. The strategic setting. We've also seen in verse 2 the cunning interrogation. And then we've been looking at the last couple of weeks in verses 3 through 9, the gracious teaching of our Lord Jesus. The gracious teaching of our Lord Jesus. And what and under this gracious teaching, we've seen that Jesus basically addresses the faulty, sinful mentality of the people of his day towards this issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage by giving two primary arguments. Argument number one there on your screen is from Scripture in verses 3 through 5. An argument from Scripture. The Lord Jesus responds to the inquiry of these Pharisees, these religious leaders, of whether it was lawful, verse 2, for a man to divorce his wife by basically asking these individuals, what did Moses command you? What does Moses say about this issue? And in essence, what Jesus was saying, what does Scripture say? And of course, when Scripture speaks, we know that God speaks. So Christ brings them back to the Word. What does the Word of God say as given through Moses, who was inspired to write the first five books of the Old Testament? What does God say about this issue? You've adapted the, you've ad- adapted the, the, um, the Word of God, essentially what He says to these religious leaders, to basically twist the Scriptures and twist the meaning of Scripture, to basically justify your sin. But Jesus says, That's not to be the case. You are to go back and look at what Scripture actually says. And I love this because this is so instructive for us, isn't it? As believers even living in today's culture. This is the the greatest way that we can graciously respond, brothers and sisters in Christ, to the culture of the day. By basically saying, I am not going to be shaped and informed by what's going on around me, by the views of politicians, by the views of social media, all of these other things. I want to be shaped by the Word of God. So in every issue that we are experiencing and wrestling with and being challenged with right now in our culture, we ought to be asking, what does God say about that particular issue? What does He say about this? That's argument number one from Scripture. Argument number two is from the beginning An argument from God's original design, as Jesus responds to their question about the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, he calls them to realize that God has specifically designed marriage to be a certain thing from the very beginning in verses 6 through 9. And we begin to see this, that there are four characteristics of what God made marriage to be. The first one that we saw is that marriage is to be monogamous. Marriage is monogamous. And don't miss this basic and obvious reality that from the very beginning, no matter what our culture says, and no matter what the fads of the day are, God created or designed the first marriage to be between one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship. And thus, anything else, same gender marriages, the LGBTQ whatever, whatever, plus movement. All of those things are counter to the design of God from the very beginning. It is a sin, a breaking, and a perversion of God's divine design to do anything else but marry people, one man and one woman being married together in a covenant of marriage, as we got a chance to see yesterday. Um, Two of our very own getting married yesterday. Secondly, secondly, Our Lord makes the point that marriage is a union. 
A union between two people, two lives being fused together, glued into one, into a beautiful, unbreakable union. And we saw that what this means is if we are one with our spouse in this unbreakable union, then going outside of your marriage to be with someone else is a breach. It's a breaking of the the promise of the vows that you have made with your spouse, of the bond that marriage is to reflect. And it also means if we are one with our spouse in this beautiful union, it means that we should flesh out live out this oneness as believers. We should flesh this out in the way that we interact together. And we talked about many different ways that we should have a sort of functional oneness be expressed in our marriage. We should be striving to share such a life together that in our thinking and in our mindset, we are through godly communication becoming one. Also in the way that we um, think about finances and our resources as married couples. We are to be having this functional oneness, even in the way that we use God's resources. We are to think like-minded, strive for like-mindedness in the area of physical care for one another, looking out for one another's needs in our marriage. And we talked about even the issue of uh, physical intimacy in marriage, that we ought to be taking care of one another in that area as well and living at this oneness in that relationship. We ought to be thinking as one in our goals and our priorities in our marriages and families and parenting and church life and all of that. So the fact that we are one in this beautiful union of marriage should show itself in the way that we live as couples in this, this sharing of a life together. Well, the third characteristic that I want to call us to this morning is this, that marriage is an exclusive relationship. Marriage is an exclusive relationship. Look at verse 7 with me of Mark 10. He says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, which is basically Moses' commentary after God brings the first marriage of Adam and Eve together. And Moses' statement is, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Jesus recites that particular um, or quotes that verse by basically reiterating the permanence or not the permanence but the exclusivity of the marriage relationship that there is no other relationship brothers and sisters that is to intervene into the the central relationship of marriage with your spouse if you are married this morning the parallel account of matthew chapter 19 and verse 5 says this for this cause A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. I love that imagery of leaving and cleaving. It's wonderful imagery. Leaving has the idea of leaving behind, of deserting, of abandoning, of detaching oneself specifically from one's parents. And then cleaving has the idea of of pursuing hard after your own spouse. I often think about this, and I know that the imagery isn't very positive, but this idea of, of in marriage, we, of stalking one another. I know that that's kind of creepy imagery, right? But this is a, if we can call it this, a, a sanctified stalking of one another in marriage, okay? Of this aggressive pursuit. It's, a, it's strong language, this picture of leaving and cleaving. It's the picture of a, of a central and exclusive relationship that you are pursuing that no one is to interfere with. 
No one is to intervene in this relationship. Can I say this? Not even your own parents. Okay? Whether you are younger and married or older and married, you know, oftentimes parents can become an issue in the life of a particular married couple. Um, you've seen the classic movie series back in the 90s, I believe, of Father of the Bride, right? Steve Martin being the main character there. And there are two movies there. Part one, actually, there's three parts. But parts one and two, and parts, part one, Steve Martin is marrying off his daughter to this young man. And then in, the, in part two, she's already married to the, to the uh, son-in-law. And she's now pregnant with a baby. And in both movies, there is a, a scene where they've had fights. With, uh, this daughter has gotten in a fight with the, with the son-in-law. And she shows up in the middle of the night one day, and I think a different time, another time, in the other movie, basically to get Steve Martin's take on the problems that they're having in their marriage. And so Steve Martin sort of operates like this mediator between the son-in-law and the daughter, really intervening into their marriage without giving them an opportunity to work out their marriage themselves. You know, that happens in different ways, even in the lives of various couples. And that can become an issue if we're not careful. It's not that... The relationship with our parents ends when we get married. It's that it's just going to look different now. It's going to look different. Now the central relationship is your spouse, your husband-wives, your wives' husbands. That is the central relationship now. And it isn't that you can't even seek counsel from your parents or even other godly people. But it should be that you're trying to do so together in a way where you are considering one another or you're pursuing this together. And so there's a fine line there of seeking counsel from parents and other godly people in life, and yet at the same time moving in one direction together where you are both doing it with the same aim of strengthening your marriage through that godly counsel. You know, now, for some, it's that. But for others, it's more subtle. It's more subtle. This failure to leave and cleave into this exclusive relationship. You know, for other people... All of us, to some extent or another, as married couples, we bring baggage into the marriage relationship. We bring baggage into the marriage relationship, thinking patterns, ways of doing things, that experiences, maybe the way that we grew up under our parents, under a different household. And now we import that mentality and those methodologies into the marriage. And it doesn't necessarily have to be sinful things. You know, for me, it's kind of funny. Sometimes it is funny things like these. For me, it was the way that I folded clothes when I got married with my wife, Andrea. You know, there was a, a philosophy of folding clothes that I learned in my home. And there was a philosophy of folding clothes that she learned in her home. And so, you know, early on, I remember when we began to fold clothes together as young marrieds, she would kind of look at me with this blank stare like, why are you doing it that way? You know? I would say, sweetie, honey, I don't think that that's the way that you're supposed to be rolling socks that way. She says, no, honey, sweetie, that's not the way you're supposed to be folding or, or um, uh, yeah, folding socks. And there was this back and forth in a playful kind of way with a little issue like that about a philosophy of folding clothes. You know what? Eventually, guess who yielded? Me, of course. She had a better method. I learned this funky way of doing some of these things. You know, the other thing was the way that I used to cook my pancakes, okay? Um, I kind of overcooked them a little bit. So early on, again, my wife being gentle and kind with me, honey, you know, you kind of overcook your pancakes every time you make the, the, the meal. 
Would you mind maybe making them a little bit lighter? And I had to adjust to that. Okay. For all of us as married couples, there are these little issues. They're kind of fun things. I hope those things never became an issue of fighting for you guys. Okay. They didn't for us. All right. Those little things. But they could be fun things like that. But then there are more serious things that can become an issue. There are more serious things where we import a certain mentality about things like the handling of money. You know, um, I can't tell you the story after story, direct and mostly indirect from a distance, story after story of couples that I've heard where one spouse comes in with a, a very different mentality of how to handle finances, where they're not as frugal as the other, as the other um, spouse, where maybe they are wasteful in the way that they spend money. And eventually that becomes friction in the marriage. That becomes a problem in the marriage because they've imported a particular upbringing, a particular way of doing things into the marriage and haven't left that mindset aside and worked together to look at what God has to say about finances and about how to handle finances. You know, the other area is in the area of the discipline of kids. You know, I knew of a couple at a previous church who... You know, they began to have, they, they had a wonderful early uh, marriage, and then the kids came, okay? Sec, first kid, second kid, eventually the third kid, and they began to have a lot of marital issues, and really the marriage issue centered on a philosophy of parenting, how they raised the kids, and in particular, this issue of physical discipline, of spanking the little ones once they began to see that the, the, the little one was deliberately disobeying them. And the husband really wanted to be diligent according to what God's word says. And the wife really had a difficult time with this. And they began to butt heads over this particular issue. And in counseling, what happened was, is that it turned out that the, that the wife had come from a very abusive home. Where she had not seen biblical, godly, Christ-like, patient, constructive kind of discipline but she had been abused physically by her father and her siblings as well, and the mother. And then the mother had done the same thing to them. And so what she had seen was a, dis, was a, a distortion of godly discipline, and she had seen actual physical abuse. And so she imported that mentality into the marriage, and that led to friction between the two of them. You know, so there are little things and big things, brothers and sisters, that we can see that oftentimes this this beautiful exclusive relationship that we ought to have with one another where that is the central relationship and we ought to be one with one another in mindset on the various issues if we import um, parental um, uh, exp- um, uh, mindsets from our, our parents maybe our upbringing for before this marriage into the marriage we can begin to have issues and not live out this oneness this exclusive relationship together as well what are some other implications when we think about this exclusive relationship with our spouse. Well, it means that polygamy is ruled out. Polygamy is ruled out. That is marriage consisting of more than two persons. is a violation of God's divine design of that exclusive relationship that is to have the central place in your life. Then there's a so-called monogamish relationship. That's becoming more and more popular now. It's monogamish relationships. Where married or committed couples are primarily monogamous, but then they allow, to varying degrees, intimate interaction with other couples. 
And obviously that's by mutual consent. It's becoming more and more popular. As long as there's mutual agreement on both sides, both spouses, then they can intermingle with others. Multiple partners are ruled out under this. If our marriage is to be an exclusive relationship, multiple partners are ruled out. And might I say, this also applies to you who are single. You know, there's an idea out there that says, how are you going to know if you're compatible unless you have multiple partners? Unless you try out various people, like trying on shoes, how will you know that those shoes fit unless you try them on, right? And we import that mentality into uh, into the church as well sometimes. Where all of a sudden, even dating, I'm not against dating in and of itself, but even in dating, there is so much defrauding that happens. And eventually you begin to partake of, of benefits when you're dating somebody that only belong to you in the context of marriage. That's why Hebrews 13, 4 says that marriage is to be honored and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, undefiled. Well, that's true for you being a single person. Don't have that mentality of the culture that it's okay to try different people and all of that and defrauding one another and all of that. And and it's okay because you're just trying out different people. You need to be very, very careful with that mentality. The idea of swinging, as it's known, also known as spouse swapping is out there in our culture now. These are are things that are real out there. I hope that these are not not the first time you're hearing about some of these things. If our marriages are to be an exclusive central relationship, then the idea of swinging or spouse swapping should be ruled out. This is where married couples or so-called committed couples, not married, agree to exchange partners for reasons of intimacy, if you can believe it. It's unfathomable, some of this stuff, right? But this is how perverse and twisted our culture is now. That people are open to these kinds of things. And there's no shame in it. Open relationships are ruled out. Open relationships where a married couple mutually consents to be open to other partners in a secondary sense. But obviously, as long as your spouse is the central person, it's okay to dabble in the life of somebody else for intimate reasons. All of these things are distortions of God's design. But beloved, if you and I know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, all of these examples of what we see and even celebrated in our culture, in movies and sitcoms and social media, are not even things that we're going to consider doing or fleshing out in our lives, whether single or married. And might I add, that's how, uh, you know, Satan has a strategy. Satan has a, a strategy and a tactic And that is to expose us to so much of this stuff, so much of this sexual immorality, so that we become desensitized to these things. We don't even begin to feel the difference. We don't even begin to feel the the possibility of hurtfulness in these areas, of how much harm we can cause somebody else or our own spouse. Because it's so much out there in movies and sitcoms and social media. It's out there. And even creeps into evangelical circles, professing believers who flesh out some of these mentalities and some of these methodologies. It's unbelievable today to watch some of this stuff. And so we begin to get desensitized and say things like, well, that's kind of funny. 
That's kind of funny that they do that kind of a thing. Or, you know what? That's not a, what's wrong with it? I mean, really, what's wrong with that, with wife swapping? What's wrong with swinging? What's wrong with trying out various people? What's wrong with these things? We begin to use terminology like that. And in the heart, it exposes our own sin. Well, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. Listen to me. Don't ever succumb to these kinds of mentalities. As if it's okay just because it's prevalent in our culture to do these things. It's okay for believers to do the same thing. If you know and love Christ and you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you understand that marriage is an exclusive relationship and commitment that nobody should intervene in that relationship. And so adultery, immorality in all its forms is a sin and God hates these sins. Because they are counter to what he has designed from the beginning. In fact, adultery was so serious that in the Old Testament, the punishment for adultery was death. Death. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14, God commanded the people, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And then in Leviticus 20 and verse 10, it says, If there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, they were to be executed. They were to be executed. Adultery was punishable by death. Can you imagine if we still did that today? How people would be warned against doing this if death was at stake? Amazing. Adultery is a breaking of the marriage union, brothers and sisters. Of that beautiful, exclusive relationship, that commitment that you've made before God and before others. That displays the gospel to the world. Now, is there forgiveness for those who blow on it in this area in Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. Adultery is not the unpardonable sin. You know, one spouse may even choose to forgive their spouse for something like this. I've seen this happen and, and marriages be restored amazingly in the gospel. I've seen it go the opposite directions, however, where adultery is a sure way to lead to the destruction, the dissolving of your own marriage. This is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. How serious is this issue of exclusivity? Throughout the Old Testament, one of the graphic ways that God shows his jealousy for his people is by likening his relationship to them as a marriage between a husband, namely himself, and a bride, his people, his wife. In fact, yesterday, the marriage of a couple here at our church, we had an opportunity to reflect about that uh, on that in, from Ephesians chapter 5, on the fact that Christ loves his bride, his church, and that human marriage is a picture of Christ and his redeemed people, his church. God is jealous for his, for his people. That metaphor is so, so important for us to understand. God is like a, like a husband whose anger will not be quenched when his wife is unfaithful to him. And that becomes the ultimate picture of what is true in the human marriage relationship. You should only have eyes for your spouse, brother or sister. You should only have eyes for your spouse. And so what all of this means is that nothing... 
Hear me. Nothing, nothing, nothing should seduce us and capture our attention away from our wives' husbands. Nothing should. You and I need to be careful with what we're looking at. Because it isn't only the act of going out and interacting with somebody, not your spouse. It's the heart issue, isn't it? It's the issue of of the lust, the evil desires of the heart. Where we begin to contemplate these things. And along those lines, we need to be careful to our exposure to such things like pornography. Pornography. Pornography is ruled out if you realize that your marriage is an exclusive relationship. You are not to import that kind of thing into your life. You are only to have eyes for your wife. And please do me a favor. You and I, husbands, let's not buy into the lie that because pornography is so pervasive in our culture, so popular, and so many men are struggling with it, that it's okay for us to do it. It is not okay. It is not okay. God considers that a sin. Because now we're giving something precious to somebody else that doesn't belong to them. belongs only to our spouse. And that is our eyes and our heart affections. Belong to God and to our dear spouse. This is obviously a big issue with men, but also with women. What does this mean also for you wives? That you should be careful with what you're looking at. What you're fantasizing about. What you're contemplating in your heart. What you're entertaining in your thoughts. Who you think about in a way that's inappropriate. That is unfaithful to your spouse from the heart. Be careful, ladies, with this. And might I say to you, those of you who are single, preparing to be married, same thing. It's a battle of the heart, isn't it? We need to guard our hearts. Guard our hearts. In fact, Jesus made this point in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27 when he said this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. The people of his day left it at that. Here's about, it's about the externals. As long as you don't go and be with somebody else, not your spouse, you've heard it it said, you shall not do that. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. He says, but I say to you, That everyone who looks at a woman with lust, that is evil desire for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What was his point? You want to not even get to the point where you're with somebody else, not your spouse? Deal with the issue of the heart, your inner desires, your evil desires. The things that you think about. The things that you long to do with somebody else. Kill that sin in the heart so that you never get to the point where you're in bed with somebody else. How do you do that? How do you guard your heart? I think Romans 12 and verse 2 is so instructive, isn't it? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And how do we renew our mind? How do we wash our thinking daily after watching social media and being out in the workplace and out in the world and seeing all of the different distortions of God's Word? How do we wash our thinking by means of the Word of God? Colossians 3.16 
Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let it make its home in your heart. How? By reading it and meditating upon it and memorizing the word and thinking deeply about the things of God. And asking pertinent questions about how the word of God applies to our hearts. And what we learn about Him and repenting of sin in the heart as we allow the Spirit of God to apply the truth to our hearts. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Colossians 3.16 That's how we begin to fight the battle of the heart, brothers and sisters. You know, back when I was a teen, there was an unmarried couple who I knew. Dear couple, good friends. Um, They were a lot older than me. And they used to spend a lot of time with this other married couple. So you have an unmarried couple and a married couple just spending time together. You know, the married couple was a lot older. And so at first, that was just a a friendship that they developed. But eventually, it became a discipleship relationship. And eventually, it became something more than that. Where the unmarried young lady began to have eyes for the married husband and vice versa. And they began behind the scenes to interact together in an inappropriate, sinful relationship. And when they were discovered, two elders showed up at their houses, basically calling them out on their sin. The young lady who was unmarried totally repented. And the married man never really repented from that. It was interesting. One of the pastors got up on a Sunday morning as this man is still not repenting, this married man, of what he had been doing, being unfaithful to his wife. And this pastor gets up and he starts giving this message about we all need to learn to forgive. Who amongst us has never sinned? You cast the first stone, this pastor says. Basically defending this guy who had not repented of the sin, of being unfaithful to his spouse. And of course we would all say, of course there's, there's forgiveness for somebody who repents, who turns from that sin. But there are so many churches today, brothers and sisters... Places that I've known of, that have condoned this kind of sin, that see it as unloving to call somebody out on this, on a violation of the exclusive relationship they have with their spouse. If you call that out, you are unloving. You need to forgive. Of course there's forgiveness, but only when there's repentance and an acknowledgement and confession of your sin. Of course God is ready to forgive the broken and contrite over their sin. That's not what had happened here. That type of ungodly response to immorality is a sure way to destroy a church, isn't it? Christ cares about the the purity of his church. Love and truth go together inseparably in the way that we deal even with, with sin. And so it's never loving to ever condone such behavior where somebody is going outside of the bounds of that exclusive relationship with their spouse. Now the caution is for all of us, however isn't it? Single or married. Remember the law of relationships. Okay? Remember the law of relationships. Time plus presence plus conversation equals attachment. Equals connection. It's just the way it goes. Time plus presence plus conversation equals connection. Equals attachment. In God's right timing and with God's kind of person that he puts in your life, you haven't been the right kind of person, that is a beautiful law, isn't it? That could lead to marriage, to a covenant of marriage with somebody, or that only grows. But hear me. 
outside of the bounds of marriage? We need to guard our hearts because time plus presence plus conversation with somebody not your spouse, if you are not careful, will soon lead to an emotional attachment or connection with that person that is unhealthy, that breaks the exclusive exclusivity of your marriage. Or somebody else becomes central to you rather than your spouse. Now, fourthly, fourthly, the fourth characteristic of God's design is this. Marriage is permanent. Marriage is permanent. Look at verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let no man or woman separate. I love that. Everything he has said before underscores this here. That marriage is monogamous, that marriage is a union, that marriage is to be exclusive, marriage is to be permanent. That phrase there, let no man separate, is a present active imperative. It's a continual command to be followed. Let no man divide. Let no man split up. In other words, God, the Creator, sets the terms and conditions for marriage. And from the very beginning, God created marriage to be for life. For life, permanent, permanent. It's a binding covenant for the rest of our lives with our spouse, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. I hope that that's your heart. And I hope that you pray by God's grace that that would be continue to be your heart, spouse, that you would continue to be devoted in that way to your marriage partner. So there's no such thing under this as non-committal relationships. Well, we simply partake of all of the benefits of marriage, but if we feel like walking away, we can walk away, right? There's no such thing here um, under these points that our Lord uh, tells us here. There's no such thing as non-committal relationships, right? Kind of what you see out in, in our society. One wise person used to tell me, Kempis, don't ever be the kind of person who runs from commitment like the culture. Look, just look out. And they would expand on this. Look at the culture. Look at the movies. Look at people out in society. They don't get married because they don't want to make a quote-unquote commitment and be tied down. Of course, they would say. Of course. Why buy the cow if you could have the milk for free? Why buy the cow if you could have the milk for free? Kind of an interesting way of putting it, right? But you know what? The essence of that is so true, isn't it? There are people out in our society who want all of the benefits of marriage, but they don't want to make a commitment to somebody else. They don't want to enter into a covenant with that person. That is not the way of the believer, brothers and sisters. It isn't. And you single people, that is not the way of the Christian if you are a follower of Christ. So please note... As our Lord graciously teaches on marriage and divorce, he argues from the standpoint of Scripture, that's argument number one, and from the standpoint of the beginning of God's original design for marriage. You know, these people, especially the religious leaders, had, had allowed the culture of the day to shape and inform them. But Jesus, in essence, says, let's get back to the Word and let's get back to what God designed from the very beginning, pre-fall, pre-Genesis chapter 3. What did God intend marriage to be? was his message to them. We too need to learn from this. Hear me. Don't succumb to the increasing secularism in our country. 
to a culture that continues to be about no God. Anti-God agendas of people who are all about the exaltation of self and the eliminating of God from every segment of our society. Don't drink the Kool-Aid and go down that route. By the grace of God. And as I've said, even in evangelical churches, professing believers want to argue so many issues from the standpoint of how they feel, what their experiences have been, or from the standpoint of changing times. But let me remind us today that God is outside of time and not subject to, to, to time. He's not subject to the culture of the day. God does not bow to people who are now calling themselves progressives and going completely away from what God has revealed in his word. God doesn't bow to people's thinking like that. No matter how educated they may be, no matter how high on the political ladder they might be, God and God alone in this issue of marriage, brothers and sisters, defines and establishes the terms for marriage, not our world around us, not the thinking of the world. And while times may change, God does not change, and neither does what he instituted. In Malachi 2.16, God's word says, I hate divorce, says the Lord. I hate divorce, says the Lord. Someone says, well, campus, times have changed, right? People now think different. Those are social constructs in human history. People now think differently, interact differently than in primitive times. Listen to me. God doesn't change. God is not subject to the way that sinful, corrupt, human depraved people think. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. And listen to Numbers 23 and verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent, that is, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? I love that. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. James 1.17, the Word of God says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, speaking of God, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In other words, God doesn't change. His character doesn't ebb and flow depending on the times or people's mood or the culture of the day. And if, his word, if He doesn't change, His Word doesn't change. Specifically with regards to this Original design of marriage, no matter what the world says. Matthew twenty four thirty five, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I love that. His word stands written. Hear me. When people want to redefine what comprises a marriage, they will either have to recreate a God of their own creation that fits and justifies their sin, or they will do away with God and His Word altogether. That's the reality of the day that we're living in. But our Lord says, no. 
This is marriage through God's eyes, and God doesn't bow to anyone. People submit to His Word, or later on when they stand before God, they will suffer the consequences for that, apart from Christ. This is His gracious teaching. His gracious teaching. Finally, let's look at the fourth main point, the clarifying inquiry in verses 10 through 12. The clarifying inquiry. His disciples are totally taken back by all of this, right? They're a part of that, of that culture. They're, being, they're having their minds renewed as well, even as they've been following Jesus for approximately three years by this time. This is strong stuff. This is counter-cultural stuff to the disciples. And so in verse 10, they're in the house, if you notice. We don't know precisely whose house that was. But the disciples, verse 10, began questioning Jesus about this. Again, this meaning marriage and divorce. The disciples were stunned by Jesus' teaching. They're taken back. They, they themselves need clarification. And of course, the Lord, more and more, as they head now to Jerusalem, if you remember, more and more wants to spend time with his disciples, investing right thinking into them as well. In Matthew 19.10, it says that the disciples said to Jesus, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, monogamous, exclusive, union, permanent, if it's like this, it's better not to marry. Apparently, the Lord's teaching is too strict, too hardcore for the disciples as well. This was, to them, from a human perspective, an, an impossible standard to keep such as it is for many today even in our culture. They can't fathom this. this can't, you cannot really believe that, Christian. You cannot possibly believe that that's what God wants, right? That that's what happiness consists of. What? The disciples felt that perhaps even in their day. Well, the Lord is not going to change God's design or God's word to accommodate them or the culture. In fact, notice that he puts things even, he puts even more pressure on them. Notice verse 11, what he says to them. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Please note, he's talking about unbiblical divorce here. Illegitimate divorce. And then he adds in verse 12, and if she, the wife herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Notice that Mark also mentions the wife in verse 12. It was uncommon for Jewish wives to leave their husbands, but remember that Mark is primarily addressing a Gentile audience. And so the Jews under a Roman authority, this would have been more prevalent for even wives to be doing this and leaving their husbands. And so here Jesus moves past the exception and the concessions made for divorce. And he basically says, not only is free divorce, divorce for any reason at all, which was the basis of their question, not only is that a violation of God's word and God's divine design, but let me also remind you that the spouse who illegitimately, unbiblically divorces their spouse and goes and remarries another person commits adultery as well. Wow. In other words, illegitimate, unbiblical divorce is a sin in itself. But in addition, the guilt of adultery comes with marrying someone else after that unbiblical divorce. Double whammy. 
One sin on top of another. Jesus says, don't miss that. What he's saying is that if you unbiblically divorce your spouse and then you go and marry another, you remarry, you are present tense, continually present tense in a state of adultery, commits adultery, present tense. You are an adulterer. You ask, is there forgiveness if I've done that? Is there forgiveness? And of course the answer is yes. When there's repentance, when there's acknowledgement, right? Even this is not the unpardonable sin. There's forgiveness at the foot of the cross. But this is a caution, isn't it? A warning that you can't have this mentality that I'm going to sail off into the sunset. Hey, if I'm unhappy with my spouse, if I don't have the feelings anymore, if they're not making me happy as I define happiness... If there's someone better out there that I've identified, I'm going to just go ahead and leave them. God will forgive me. Everything will be okay. It's okay for me to just leave my spouse. No. No. You unbiblically, illegitimately divorce your spouse, leave your spouse for someone else, and you also become an adulterer and cause somebody else not to become an adulterer as well. Double whammy. I love what the Edmund Hebert writes here. The effect of Jesus' teaching is to condemn all divorce as contrary to God's will and to set forth the highest standards of marriage for all. Christians of all eras have often fallen short of the ideal, just as ancient Jews did. God can forgive divorce as well as other sins. Divorce may sometimes be the lesser of two evils, but it is never pleasing to God or good in itself. Divorce should not be looked upon by conscientious Christians as the preferred option. End quote. Well stated. Well stated. Now question. Is remarriage ever allowed? Is remarriage ever allowed? And of course the answer is yes, under four possible scenarios. One, in the case of adultery. In the case of adultery. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus stated this. And he reiterated it again in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9. In the case of adultery, you can remarry. In the case of abandonment, if the non-Christian spouse abandons the Christian spouse, the believer can remarry. We saw this a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 15 and following. Three, in the case of death, if your spouse dies, you can remarry. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, younger widows are there instructed to remarry by the Apostle Paul. And in Romans 7, verses 2 and 3, if a husband dies and you remarry, you're not an adulteress. You're free to marry. It goes the same for a husband. And then fourthly, you can remarry in the case you divorced or remarried before you became a Christian. There are people who prior to coming to know Jesus divorced and remarried, and you sought forgiveness for this, and God has forgiven you. And I want to remind you of that if there's been genuine repentance. Those are the four biblical grounds for remarriage. You know, I know a Christian man, a brother, whom I respect very, very much, who having become a Christian after an illegitimate divorce, became a Christian after that, 
And he even went back and sought the forgiveness of that spouse that he hurt from his perspective. What a wonderful thing to do. Yes, I've been forgiven by God, become a Christian. But now even if prior to coming to know Jesus, I hurt somebody else, I want to go back and I want to display the gospel by asking for their forgiveness for the way that I sinned against them. What a wonderful thing that is. But beloved, in all of this teaching on remarriage, on marriage and divorce and remarriage by the Lord Jesus, all of this should, should remind us of the importance of cultivating our marriages, right? We've talked so much about this. That the surest way by the grace of God and by the strength of the Spirit of God, the surest way to safeguard against marital infidelity is by you and I taking a proactive approach to cultivating a strong marriage. Are you dating your spouse? Are you dating your spouse? Even during the quarantine, are you dating your spouse, spending time together? You know, pe- people ask, quantity of time or quality of time, Pastor? Both. Quantity and quality of time. Right now, during the quarantine, we've had many home dates, my wife and I. Coffee moments, tea moments, backyard dates, right? Or maybe now that we're able to get out a little bit, we even do some mini shopping dates together. We can always find ways of spending time together. Can I ask you, married couple, are you being discipled? Especially if you're a younger couple, married couple. Are you being discipled in this area? Where an older couple is investing into you? Are you being invested into in the area of strengthening your marriage? Let me ask you this. When away from your spouse, what's your thought life like? Are you guarding your thoughts? What consumes your thoughts about your spouse when they're away from you? Are you consumed with somebody else? Or even if you're thinking about them, are you filled with sweet moments where you're thinking the best about them? Where you are seeking to to pray for them? Where you have good, kind intentions in your thoughts toward them? Or are you filled with bitterness and resentment and even hatred towards your spouse for various things? That is not cultivating a strong marriage if your thought life is like that and you're okay entertaining that kind of thought life. How about the way you think about other people, not your spouse? Thinking impurely? Fantasizing about somebody else who's not your spouse? See, it begins with our thinking in our hearts, right? Our heart meditations for our spouse. Taking a proactive approach to praying for them and really thinking the best about them. 1 Corinthians 13, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. Practicing biblical love in our thought life towards our spouse. So that then when we're around them, there's sweetness and kindness expressed towards them. That's taking a proactive approach in our marriages. And may I say to all of us, don't ever entertain or be the source of breaking up someone else's marriage. If that's where you are this morning, even just in your heart, entertaining such a thing in your heart, you need to repent of this. If you are not a Christian, where does it begin? Repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That He would be your Savior. The one who came to die and pay for your sins. This is where it begins for you, that you would turn from your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior. 
But if you are a professing believer, what should be your response if you're entertaining such a thing in your heart? Repentance as well. If you truly are a follower of Jesus, then you understand that Jesus hates divorce, hates adultery, hates immorality, and you're going to hate the things that your Lord hates. And you're going to confess this to the Lord. And you're going to confess this to your spouse, entertaining infidelity against them. And if you've done any of this in the past, and you're a believer, I want you to know, if there is repentance and you're broken and have confessed this to the Lord and to others, please realize that there is forgiveness at the foot of the cross. There's forgiveness at the foot of the cross. In all of this, I just want us to remember that. No matter what your particular journey or experience has been, God grants grace in every single situation, right? Strong marriage, if you have a strong marriage, it's God's grace. It's not ultimately you. If you're in a struggling marriage, God's grace will get you through that. If you, are, if you have made mistakes and have regrets in this area, whatever that looks like in your life, you need to seek Christ at the foot of the cross. If you're broken or sorrowful or sad over a broken marriage in the past, and even somebody hurting you in that way, where you were the victim of that, I want you to remember that God's grace is sufficient for you. And one of the ways that he even cares for you is through God's people in the church, through the prayers of others and others coming alongside of you. I want us to shower all of this with grace because, brothers and sisters, we are in a fallen, broken world. And the only hope for forgiveness before God and reconciliation before God is for us to trust Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the only hope... For horizontal relationships, beginning with our marriages, to be loving, gracious, forgiving, reconciling kinds of relationships is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word, O Lord. We thank you for the fact that we know that we live in a broken, fallen world where, Lord, nothing is ideal. We're seeing that all over our country. And even in this area of marriage and family we are seeing so many attacks on your original divine design but thank you lord that you have sent jesus into the world to begin to restore all things to yourself thank you lord that one day you're going to make all things new and perfect in christ in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells father help us to be committed to the gospel and that the gospel would transform even our relationships with one another beginning with our marriages we pray in jesus name Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.